Up until about 2,800 years ago, 800 BC, old world thinkers tended to interpret all of human suffering in terms of the wrath of the gods. In other words, up until about 2,800 years ago, human beings were, of course, extremely susceptible to floods, droughts, uh, poor harvests, and uh, so very much spiritual practices and philosophy concerned itself with how can we appease the gods so that they won't um, cause hardship and suffering. And so the early Hebrewic texts and Brahmin texts uh, really focus on the sacrifices necessary to appease the gods. If you think of the book of Job or Abraham, people who had to lose or be willing to sacrifice families, the early uh, exoduses and mass migrations that are pretty much found in every old world philosophy, the sacrifices of goats in long rituals, and in old world philosophy, the great sin of human beings was hubris, the idea that we could somehow in any way hope to master our faith or take the place of gods or in any way hope to control or conquer nature. And so hubris was punished in all of the mythologies and the early religions. Then about 2,800 years ago, what starts to happen is the arriving of a merchant class and the ability to stockpile foods. So, and the development of cities and what people begin to experience is, for the first time, a sense of um, a lack of vulnerability, continual vulnerability to nature, to calamities. And with that, we start to have a arrival of, all around the same time, a bunch of thinkers known as the Axial Age. And these thinkers, instead of saying that human suffering is caused externally by wrathful gods or by an indifferent or violent cosmos, these thinkers, and we're talking about the writers of the middle Hebrew scripts, such as the book of Daniel, the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, Taoist philosophy like Lao Tse, the early Hindu texts, and of course the historical Buddha. And these thinkers all said that our suffering is caused by how we use the mind, not by uh, so much external gods, but actually the focus has to shift to within. And suddenly the great sins are no longer hubris, which is the belief that we can conquer nature, but actually the sins of craving and hatred, which are taught to be uh, 
humans' great flaws that continually push us out and focus our attention on the world around us and don't allow us to, with compassion, turn inwards and learn how to develop any peace internally. So, along the lines of this philosophy that we have to begin to pay attention of our internal experience, what becomes very important in all of these philosophies is self-control. Impulse control, thought control. Because if our suffering largely comes from within and how we use the mind, then the way we gain any leverage in our happiness is by developing an ability to control how we think and how we act. The Buddha and a lot of other of his contemporaries, such as Lao Tse, noted that our impulses tend to drift towards short-term survival. We are all embedded with immediate, very fast impulses that help us survive. We are still, in other words, even though with the development of city-states and stockpiled foods and medicine and all that, people still live as if death was everywhere and could happen at any time. So the brain is still set up to survive at all costs. In order to develop new thoughts that are skillful and compassionate, we have to somehow be able to put aside or override the first impulses that arise in the mind, which are always towards fight, flight, freeze, anger, craving, how can I survive in any difficult situation? Now, interestingly, the Buddha said that if we are to do this, develop self-control, the first thing we need to do is look at our basic views, how we interpret. The Buddha very much believed that the core views that human beings have, our naturally ingrained views, are generally incorrect and need to be developed if we are to have any chance of developing self-control. This is not an unusual conclusion for some 2,500 years after the Buddha's death. Great psychologists such as Albert Ellis and cognitive behavioral therapists begin to note that the beliefs we have fundamentally determine how much suffering there is in our lives. I'll give you an example. Albert Ellis used a very famous example of a person walking down a street who sees a friend and they wave to their friend and the friend doesn't wave back. And we might think, if we were that person, well, what's wrong with my friend? I'm always really nice. I reach out. I send text messages. I went to that guy's party. I care about this person. Why aren't they waving back to me? If we think that, then there's going to be a lot of resentment, agitation. We're going to tell the story again and again in our mind. We're going to wind up feeling unhappy. But suppose instead of that interpretation, we add, 
instead the interpretation of, I guess they didn't see me. They're busy, they've got a lot going on, they didn't see me. If that's our interpretation, then there's no more stress, suffering, no more thinking the story. We just let it go and we move on with our day. So, the single act of interpreting the world and what's going on changes how much suffering there is in our life. Albert Ellis and the Buddha each had their overlapping lists of the kind of beliefs they thought always cause suffering in our lives. Both said that the tendency to take hardship personally is a great source of suffering. For example, if we go through a difficult breakup with a friend, or a parent acts difficultly, or a... or uh, and unskillfully, or uh, we go through at work people who are crazy and demanding and we can't live up to their shifting demands. The interpretation is why are they doing this to me causes suffering. On the other hand, if we interpret those experiences as this happens to everyone in life, Maybe it not, might not be in their job, but we all experience difficult, impossible people. We all experience setbacks. We all experience people who are uh, challenging, unpleasant. The Buddha even used the example of mosquito bites. People who said can give us mosquito bites through our lives. And he said the first mistake we make is to take those mosquito bites personally. Why is this person doing this to me? Of course, if we weren't there, if somebody else was in our place, that person would act similarly. People do not change and aim their unskillfulness specifically at us. So other examples of false beliefs are the belief that we have to make everybody like us in our life, or approve of our actions. That's an immediate source of stress, because you can't do it. The Buddha and Ellis both suggested instead, select a group of about five friends that are your skillful, wise, spiritual friends, and just really make sure that you vet your ideas and your actions by them. And don't worry about appeasing everyone. Two, the idea that, or three I should say, two, the idea that to be worthwhile is to succeed in the world or to always be competent all of the time. The problem with that is that a lot of great people have not succeeded in life, which doesn't mean they're not great. Kafka didn't publish a book in his lifetime nor did many other great novelists. Great musicians languished in complete obscurity. Eric Satie. Great poets died. I think Emily Dickinson died without her poems being published. So, success in the world has nothing to do with the validity of our endeavors. 
Also, there was a great study that showed that parents who reward their children for their grades wind up with children who drop out. <laughs> parents who reward their children for their efforts wind up with children that not only stick through education, but wind up often in jobs that are fulfilling and in lifestyles that feel fulfilling. So making our feeling of inner worth contingent upon other people or succeeding in the world sets us up for suffering. On the other hand, simply believing that our effort is enough that that's what we should be rewarding and acknowledging relieves us of so much stress. Another, and I'll, I'll leave it off with this because I'd like to go to the tools for developing impulse control, but another belief that causes suffering is the belief that people out there are purely wicked that deserve to be punished. Generally, these are not the Dick Cheney's of the world. They're people that we work with, or roommates, or people that live down the hall. And the problem with this is that, one, it gets us caught again in the belief that all of our suffering is caused externally. And two, it creates the delusion that if we just change or punish one person, that somehow our lives would suddenly become easy and we'd be happy. And you'll find that even if we get rid of that one person at work or that one roommate or that one co-worker that we don't like, that very quickly somebody else takes their place. It's a self-fulfilling, self-recreating emotion that never goes away. So, how do we develop self-control so that we can begin to let go of the immediate impulses that push us towards anger, resentment, judgment, comparing ourselves with others, worrying about how other people think about us, and we can instead develop self-compassion, kindness to ourselves, uh, care, and a recognition of our efforts, and an ability to reflect on the suffering of others. How do we move from the immediate response, which is always towards survival and, and just trying to manage the outside world, to the secondary impulses, which are more towards looking at our own expectations, our own views, our own interpretations. The way that most people try to go about this, unfortunately, doesn't work. Very often, people will get into inner debates in their mind. One side will be the side of anger, frustration, wanting to quit, wanting to leave a relationship, wanting to shout or take it out on somebody, impulses. And the other part is the lecturing, haranguing social self, which worries about the implications. The problem between inner debates, as the great George Herbert Mead an early 20th century psychologist, and then subsequently neuroscientists afterwards showed that the two circuits don't really talk to each other that much. They don't listen to each other. One part is the right hemisphere expressing emotions and impulses. The other part is the left hemisphere. And they're entirely different circuits. 
And if you've ever noticed, when you try to debate with yourself a course of action, it rarely works. So what does work if we can't debate it out in our minds? Well, the first is called, very simply, taking a pause. If you're in a conflict, or if you're working through a problem, or if you're trying to figure out what to do, whether to leave a job or stay, leave an apartment, go to another place to live, whether or not to put a relationship or a friendship on hold, whatever it is, and you find yourself in a stalemate, the best thing to do is to learn how to put aside the entire triggering uh, decision itself. If we're in a conflict with someone, that means walking away. The most skillful thing to do is to walk away, whether literally, if we're in the presence of a triggering person, or in our minds, to put aside entirely the decision or the issue. This is because the more we keep the original firing going on, all it will do is re-trigger the first impulse over and over and over again, and we won't be able to move on to the more skillful secondary impulses until we move away from the trigger. And every single skillful Buddhist teacher I've studied with, they call this something along the lines of the sacred pause, the taking the break, the learning how to put something down. The great Einstein said that every single solution he ever came up with in his life happened when he put down the problem and he took a walk on the beach and stopped thinking about it. Because it's only then that out-of-the-box, non-reactive, non-immediate, ingrained, habitual thoughts eventually come up. The more we stick at it and try to figure it out and try to or work it out immediately with someone, rather than taking a break, the more defensive or the more aggressive we become. Breaking away is the way that slower secondary impulses arise in the mind. The second approach is called thought substitution. And rather than arguing back and forth the point, we learn simply to completely get rid of an issue by bringing up a skillful reflection that will help us look at life from a different perspective entirely. I'll give you one of my favorite examples. The great Walter Mischel, a psychologist in 1960s, excuse me, in Yale, uh, did the famous test where he put a marshmallow in front of the five-year-olds, and he said, I'm going to go away for ten minutes, and if I return and that marshmallow is still there on that plate, you get a second marshmallow. So the only thing the child has to do is to wait 10 minutes and they get a 200% return on their profit. Now, interestingly enough, they found that the children who could withstand and could develop impulse control are the ones who succeeded in school and wound up by far and away lasting longer in higher education and wound up happier in life. The only... I'm certain that I was one of the kids that immediately gobbled up the marshmallow. 
So what, did, what was the difference between the two kinds of kids? Well, very simply, when they videoed, uh, they, they, survey, they uh, watched the children from a surveillance. I think they filmed them. What they saw is that the kids who didn't eat the marshmallow and managed to wait the ten minutes distracted themselves. Holy manoli, who would have thought of it? They literally didn't stare at the marshmallow thinking, I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it, I can't eat it. They would look around the room. It was that simple. Trying to not do something while you're staring at it and thinking about it is virtually impossible. But the children that learn to think about something else, to look at something else, easily spent the ten minutes without eating the marshmallow and thus wound up developing impulse control. So the Buddha talked about that in the five ways of removing difficult thoughts. The Buddha said the first technique is to think of a skillful reflection or thought that doesn't cause suffering and replace whatever thought is obsessively repeating in your mind. So, for example, this is funny. One of the things that triggers me, I have no idea why, I was, but this is just the sad truth. Once every four years, I get jury duty notices. And each year it's the same, those four years. I get it, and my brain alights with outrage. <laughs> the criminal justice system, whatever, you know, white policing, whatever it is. <laughs> And the, the, the joke of it is, whenever I go down, they immediately look at me and they go, just get the hell out of here. <laughs> I mean, come on, are you serious? Why did you even bother to show up? But you have to. So I have that. I'll, I'll watch my mind like a light with the inner, like, uh, completely needless speeches that I plan on using that I'll never actually get the chance to use my Marxist speeches, whatever, to disqualify me from the jury duty that no sane person would ever put me on to begin with. Because I'm a bleeding heart, lefty, progressive, you know, whatever. So, uh, instead of trying to argue it out in my mind, or try to reason with myself that I'm not going to be picked anyway, because that doesn't make those repetitive thoughts go away, what I do is I simply reflect reflect on the fact that, one, that every other time I've been down there, I've not only been immediately excused, but then I turned it into a nice day and wound up sitting by the water downtown Brooklyn, you know, getting some Vietnamese food. Or two, I reflect on how many far worse problems I could be facing than that. Which brings me up to reframing. Reframing is, in any situation in life that's difficult, ask ourselves how somebody in a completely different set of circumstances would view the exact same circumstance. I've done a lot of hospice work where you are with people, you know, at their final days. I guarantee you, nobody who's ever done hospice work has ever been frustrated with the minutia of their lives the moment they leave the hospice center. It's impossible. 
it's impossible when we think about the difficulties of people we know and what they face to feel that there's something profoundly painful about most of our experience. My mother used to do this, but she used to do it with, I, don't, I have no idea, we were lower middle class Jews growing up on the, on the Upper West Side, and my mother would say, when I, whenever I complained, would say, think of the starving children in Africa. <laughs> which was an attempt to do it, but the fact is I didn't know any starving children in Africa, so it was difficult for me to, to, to mentalize and to imagine their perspective. So I find it necessary in my life to really meet and work with people and get to know people who are experiencing hardships so that whenever I experience a setback or difficulty, I have immediately at my disposal a different way to frame the experience. Now those are what's known as taking a pause, thought substitution, and reframing are known as explicit self-control. They will use a lot of thinking to get rid of impulses and thoughts that are unskillful. But there's other techniques known as implicit and what I would suggest is try one explicit and one implicit. Implicit are tools that don't use thinking to develop self-control. The first technique is simply known as harmonizing. The human brain is developed to mimic. We are set up to mimic other people. If somebody is in a room tapping their feet, you will probably start tapping your feet anxiously. If you're in a group of people where two people start to yawn, you will yawn. If somebody is anxious and talking quicker, a study shows you will start to become anxious and talk quicker. So we are all susceptible to emotion contagion. The good news is that we don't only have to be susceptible to bad emotion contagion. We can actually use this strategically. You can find and associate with people that you know tend to be calmer, more laid back, search in a party or in a gathering of people with people who have a reflective nature, at work congregate towards people who are not dramatic, but to the people who tend to be and face challenges with a degree of poise. We are set up literally to imitate the emotional states of others. We do it by imitating their body states. So, as the Buddha said, gravitate towards people who are tranquil or serene. We tend to naturally gravitate towards the people who are the most activated, which works against us. A similar technique is body regulation, which is simply, if you're anxious, change the pace of how you breathe. Long exhalations tend to stop the amygdala from firing, which helps you calm down. Relaxing the shoulders reduces stress. Softening the belly relaxes fear and obsessive worry. Opening up the chest, even, believe it or not, has the ability to reduce the amount of heartache that we're experiencing. It won't get rid of it, but it will allow us to be with uh, attachment losses easier. 
So simply changing the way we sit has been shown over and over and over again. The way we stand and hold our body and breathe has an enormous influence over our impulses and our emotional states. There was a study by a clinical psychologist that showed that in a classroom, when she asked the people who were naturally talkative and naturally confident to sit like the people who were shy, with their arms crossed and their heads over like that, very quickly they completely changed their behaviors, and vice versa. Affect labeling has been shown by the neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman to be one of the most effective ways to reduce obsessive thoughts. Affect labeling is simply looking beneath whatever we're thinking about obsessively and name the emotion that's present. So if we're in a resentment and we're thinking over and over again about how somebody's mistreated us, simply note, oh, I'm angry, I'm angry. I'm angry. His study showed that simply naming the emotional state we're in reduces obsessive ideation and amygdala firing as well. Interestingly enough, high schoolers writing about their anxieties before an exam did far better than high schoolers who wouldn't acknowledge their anxiety. So simply stating aloud the emotion that we're in is a very powerful tool. And finally, last of all, believe it or not, the feeling that our actions matter and that uh, there are implications of our actions and our thoughts helps regulate. A wonderful study that if you put in one way that people do this, is they will put an image of a spiritual figure in their room. And they find that that modulates behavior and reduces obsessive thoughts. For example, they found that if you have an image of two eyes or a face in a room, people are 300 times more likely to donate to charities in that room they are ten times less likely to cheat on an exam. Not because there's a person looking at them, there's simply a photograph. They put in one a security camera in an open space that was very visible, and they found that people were four times more likely to help somebody who dropped their shopping bag if there was a security camera than if there wasn't one. <laughs> the feeling that people are observing or that our actions matter, that we are seen, makes us act in a more controlled, responsible, less frightened, less reactive way. There's a whole article in Scientific American Mind, if you'd like to read the research, called Why Feeling Observes Makes You a Better Person. Littering goes down 300% when people feel watched in a cafeteria. Not by a camera, not by a person, just simply an image. This is why I'm sure so many houses around America have Jesus images on their wall. 
studies show that people don't smoke when they're in a room with a Jesus in it. <laughs> it's actually more effective than don't smoke messages. So, that's why I have little Buddhas all around my house. Helps me act more responsibly, pick up the phone all the time, turn the message. So, just to review, the explicit ways are taking a pause, substituting thoughts of worry and concern with thoughts of empowerment, reflecting on times we've gotten through difficult situations. Uh, reframing is remembering the perspective of somebody who's facing challenges that are far different from our own. Harmonizing is taking advantage of associating with people who are calm. Body regulation is simply changing the body we're in and the breath we're in to a confident state. Affect Labeling is simply naming the emotional state beneath all the thinking, and feeling observed is simply put a Buddha statue somewhere or have something that reminds you that our actions matter. So I thank you for listening. Hope there was something worthwhile in there. So if you like, uh, close your eyes. Sight is a very dominant sense port. It's very easy for vision to distract us from internal feelings, but there are people who, for various reasons, find it preferable to meditate with the eyes open, and that's fine. It definitely, if you have a tendency to fall asleep, keeping your eyes open and just looking at the ground in front of you or a stationary object, but not allowing your gaze to drift, so we can begin our meditation by just taking a few breaths together. It's just nice to feel in alignment with the practices of the people around us. So let's take a nice, long in-breath through the nose, if you like. And if you like, lift your shoulders up towards your ears like you're trying to touch your ears with your shoulders. Hold it there for a moment and then breathe out through the mouth and let go of the shoulders. And then for the next in-breath, pulling in the belly tight as you can, holding it at the fullness of the breath, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, soften the belly. Nice, soft, released belly. And then for the third breath, tighten the muscles in the face, the arms, the legs, buttocks, anything you want to tighten, tighten, squeeze, squeeze, and then release everything and just allow the body to find a very, very comfortable we're going to be doing both types of meditation concentration and then open awareness concentration we do first as it's the most efficient way to settle the mind and to bring about a sense of peace and tranquility. Essentially, the way we develop this is by selecting what we refer to as an anchor, which is a set of reoccurring sensations that are available, such as the breath, or the sounds of the room. Another 
concentration anchor can be repeating a very simple phrase every couple of breaths, a phrase associated with seeking peace. Something along the lines of, may I be truly peaceful? May I feel safe and loved? So whatever object you choose, if thoughts intervene at times and pull you away from your anchor, don't add any frustration. It happens to everyone. It's a universal experience. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Simply let go of the thought and gently bring your awareness back to your anchor. If you're using the breath, the strategy that helps stay with the breath a little bit more diligently is counting. I tend to count one on the in, two on the out, three on the following inhalation, four on the exhalation, five on the next inhalation, and then back down, four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So I'm counting from one to five and back down. If you're working with just listening to the sounds of the room, try not to visualize what creates the sound. Simply listen to the environment as if you were listening to a piece of music or the audio track of a film without judging, without criticizing, just taking in all of the sensations of sound that are arising and passing. This is a good practice if you want to keep your mind spacious and open during the concentration practice.
So if you'd like to move on to the insight meditation, you can let go of maintaining an awareness, the anchor, and just allow the mind to float about in open, spacious awareness of all the events that are occurring in the present moment. So what are those sensations? You have the feeling of contact with the ground, the feeling of the body and the posture that you're in. Of course, we have the sensation of breathing in and out. There's the sound of the air conditioner, sounds drifting from the street in my voice. In the front of the body, at times, there are what's called feelings, which are emotional expressions, somatic expressions of emotions. Comfort, discomfort. And in the mind, there are moods. Joy, anxiousness, sadness, worry, distraction, presence. So all of these experiences are available to you. There's even the lights behind the eyelids. Now, occasionally, what could be known as the movie theater in the mind will turn on with a visual thought, and the loudspeakers in the mind will start playing a inner chatter, thoughts, based on words. When these thoughts arise, just practice knowing the gist of what they're trying to tell you. Don't flesh them out or climb inside of them. And then freeze the thought once you have an idea of what it's trying to convey, its basic message. And observe how this thought has affected everything else in your experience. If it's a frightening thought, do you notice your stomach clenching and your breath becoming shallow? <coughs> Perhaps an empowering fantasy, you might notice your shoulders relax, a feeling of energy in the body. An angry thought might result in the jaw clenching, muscles in the shoulders and neck, fists, the presence of somebody in our mind. So the practice of insight is to see how our experience is in any moment, the internal experience, and then also to investigate how different mental states affect the rest of our experience. 
So we're going to begin the transition from the meditation. <clears throat> As usual, it's worthwhile to reflect on the virtue of our practice. As unlike career achievements in the world, which people will approve of, the support for our meditation practice largely comes from within recognizing our own efforts, recognizing the amount of care we put in. And even if the meditation is difficult, simply putting in the time deserves recognition. So many people spend their entire lives chasing happiness externally. To have a practice that develops inner peace, inner compassion, so that we can calm ourselves when we're in conflicts, and setbacks, frustrating experiences not only is to our own lasting benefit, mental and physical health has been well documented of meditation, but also the people around us benefit as well. We're much less likely to engage in needless conflicts. And we're much more likely to be creative in resolving disagreements. it's worthwhile noting that your practice is not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of all beings. Finally, when you open your eyes, try to do it slowly, taking the entire length of the sound of the bowl. And during the slow opening of your eyes, just <laughs> Figure out how to integrate sight into all of the awareness of internal sensations so that you don't lose connection with the body, the breath, the mood and feeling states that you're in. <clears throat> 